This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about what should happen with the Me Too campaign to expose sexual harassment now that Al Franken has said he will leave the Senate. Joan Walsh says Al Franken's departure should be a beginning, not an end. We'll speak with her later in this hour. Also, we'll talk about net neutrality. The FCC is planning to bring it to an end on Thursday. John Nichols says that's a terrible idea. But first... Tuesday night was a great night for Alabama and for all of us. In the special Senate race there, Democrat Doug Jones defeated the horrible Ray Moore 50% to 48.4%. It's the first time a Democrat has won a Senate seat in Alabama in 25 years, and it's a state that Donald Trump carried just one year ago by 28%. For comment and analysis, we turn once again to Howell Raines. He's a legendary figure in journalism, an Alabama native who joined the New York Times in 1978 and was executive editor of the paper from 2001 to 2003. He's been writing about this campaign for the Times for the last month. He's also published a novel, two memoirs, and an unforgettable oral history of the civil rights movement called My Soul is Rested. We reached him today at home in Alabama. Howell Rains, welcome back, and thank you, Alabama. (laughs) Well, John, this is a day I wasn't sure I would live long enough to see. It took us almost 50 years to throw off the dead hand of George Wallace. And now the new political drama that we're involved in is going to be trying to escape the distorting hand of uh, Donald Trump. All that said, this is a glorious day for Alabama, and it it feels uh, uh, feels good for me as a native son who has criticized the state but always loved her to feel national gratitude raining down on Alabama. (laughs) Rightly so. Uh, Roy Moore was a terrible candidate in many ways, but a lot of the polls showed him winning. Some of the polls showed him winning by a lot. How much credit do you give Doug Jones for winning as opposed to just Roy Moore being a terrible candidate? Uh, I don't think Doug Jones wins without being a, uh, have one, having run an almost perfect campaign. Uh, both tactically and in terms of uh, uh, communication strategy, 
And I don't think Doug Jones wins without being the kind of Alabamian that Alabama voters are comfortable with. He's the son of industrial Birmingham. Uh, He's a Klan prosecutor. He's a man of firm principle, but he has the humility and uh, cultural finesse that is required of a a progressive candidate to succeed in Alabama. I think he's the man we've been waiting for, and I hope hope this is the doorway to a long future for him. Uh, The other element I want to point out that I think might not uh, be immediately apparent is he outspent Roy Moore six to one on television. And let us not forget, despite the rise of new media, that broadcast advertising is still one of the most potent forces in our society. Well, Alabama has been so Republican for the last couple of decades. As I said at the top here, Trump carried Alabama by 28 percent, and the the exit polls showed that the Republicans who voted were nearly unanimous in voting for Ray Moore, despite all the terrible things about him. The white evangelicals voted for him. Uh, White voters without college degrees voted for him. Rural white voters uh, voted for him. So the the Republican Party uh, is is stuck with uh, Roy Moore, despite him being you know the worst candidate in the, in their memories. I'm sure. Yeah, and they were conflicted. The Alabama Republican Party, like the National uh, Republican Party, is torn uh, by class conflict between blue collar Republicans and uh, Blue Blood Republicans. And down here, that played out in in, uh, some significant ways. The massive white vote for Roy Moore is not the Alabama that's struggling to be born. That is the old Wallace block, rural people, blue-collar folk, kind of traditional anti-corporate populists, and most importantly, people uh, with a deeply ingrained cultural conservatism and a deep reflexive racism. That's the, uh, that's the 620,000, I think it was, voters for uh, Roy Moore. On the other side, you had the picture of an Alabama that's struggling to be born, and it is uh, uh, more diverse, one-quarter black, an increasing number of Asian uh, Americans, many of them working in the uh, sciences in Birmingham, growing Hispanic population, and a demographically changed white upper-middle class, and that's the key. The suburbs of Birmingham, Montgomery, Mobile, and Huntsville put uh, Doug Jones in office. These are people, despite Alabama's rustic image, who are... uh, highly educated. Many of them work in the sciences or in highly technical fields. They have the same uh, cultural profile uh, as as their counterparts nationally, probably on everything except uh, uh, religion. And that, that was the swing factor. Those suburban Republicans, particularly young married women with families, they, they read Roy Moore correctly. And one of the interesting dramas here is that the women defecting from the Republican Party that many of their husbands voted for are the reason Doug Jones won, plus that massive black vote, which was especially inspiring to me as a student of the civil rights movement. 
because that's the voting power that changed the South in the 60s and created biracial legislatures and installed black mayors in Birmingham. And uh, we haven't seen, even in the Obama surge, uh, we haven't seen anything this powerful. And that is a real tribute to Doug Jones and to the national Democrats like Cory Booker and John Lewis, who came down here, campaigned effectively without scaring the white folks off. So, as I say, it was, it was a brilliantly engineered campaign, and I think it opens to the door to a future that we've never had before down here. I mean, we are every other old Confederate state basically crossed the New South Divide in, in 1970 or shortly thereafter. So we're 47 years behind. And the other cloud on our horizon is, of course, Donald Trump, who appeals to the most primitive instincts of the old Alabama uh, the, and the Wallace Block. Well, let's talk about Trump for a minute. Uh, he, he may have carried the state by 28 points a year, a year, just a year ago, but the opinion polls uh, showed that Trump's job rating, 48% approved yeah. yesterday and 48% disapproved. So Trump has lost a lot of support in Alabama, it looks like, from the exit polls anyway. John, you know, there's an old saying in the newspaper business uh, that I grew up in about missing the lead. In writing about this election as a victory for a good Senate candidate, we may be missing the lead, and that is the shrinking and, I think, potential fracturing of the renowned Trump base. And it was stronger, as strong here, stronger than anywhere in the country. The 48 percent is really remarkable. If we look at how Jones uh, won, uh, the exit polls showed a kind of reformation of what we used to call the Obama coalition, uh, women, uh, minority voters, and uh, young people, all strongly for uh, Doug Jones. Young voters, 60 percent for Doug Jones. Uh, were you surprised by that? No, I wasn't. We, we could feel the... Uh enthusiasm of young people going around the campaigns. The the Jones rallies and staff were, were young people, collegians, post-college folks, whereas, uh, you know, the uh, demographic of the of the uh, Moore campaign uh, was much older. And really, the people at his rallies made me feel sad because these are the Alabamians who've been repeatedly misled for generations on the race issue, and they exist exists with very poor jobs, poor medical care, and yet they can't make the connection between their state in life and the bad people they uh, put in office. Yeah. But circling back to the young people, several things are going on. One is the University of Alabama, for the first time in its history, has a majority out-of-state population. Wow. That means that young people who go there are in a much more diverse cultural environment yeah. than they have ever been. And uh, that, I think, is having an impact. And the other, the most dramatic shift among young voters to me was in uh, Lee County, which is the center of the very large and deeply conservative Auburn University. The Trump factor was so strong at Auburn during the presidential campaign that the students didn't bother to have a straw poll. That county and that campus went strongly for Doug Jones, 
pushing up toward uh, 60%. The campaign that Doug Jones ran didn't really focus on the uh, allegations of uh, sex crimes by uh, by his opponent, Roy Moore. He ran a campaign uh, that, uh, where people thought health care was the number one issue, education, infrastructure, better paying jobs. The things that Alabama actually needs, did Roy Moore ever talk about health care or education or infrastructure? No, just about Jesus and God. I mean, that was, I I attended several of, well, I attended his last rally with Steve Bannon on election eve, and that was a show that that I'm really glad I had to drive a couple hundred miles to get there, but I'm really glad I saw it, because I think I saw the end of something. How did Bannon go over with the core Roy Moore supporters? That is, again, one of the unexpected features of this election. With his appearances in a working, an industrial suburb of Mobile last week and his appearance in uh, the heartland of uh, Trump support in southeast rural Alabama on Election Eve, I think he hurt more. Wow. And, and, uh, I credit Joe Scarborough for putting his finger on it in his show early on. He picked up on the condescension that is inherent in Bannon's presentation. He gets up among these relatively small crowds that Moore was was uh, was drawing and uh, and looks down on this 200 people uh, modestly dressed and works it like a stand-up comic among the rubes. Hmm. Uh, he paces the stage with his mobile microphone. He boasts about getting into Georgetown and Harvard when uh, Joe Scarborough, an Alabamian or a, Pens- a Flor- Floridian who attended the University of Alabama, had to settle for going to school in Tuscaloosa because he couldn't pass the Ivy League entrance exams. Wow! And so, so I think he, he he radiated a kind of condescension. Uh, that reminded me of a, of a, you know, like a Vegas comic who was looking down on what he assumed was a dog patch audience. And the other thing that's very striking is uh, Senator Shelby's uh, election eve announcement yeah. that he couldn't vote for uh, Roy Moore. That is very unusual. Republican members of Congress in Alabama never speak out on political issues that have an ethical component. Hmm. So that was very striking, and what that said to the average Alabamian didn't didn't need to be spelled out by Shelby, and he didn't spell it out, which was the edu- the University of Alabama educational community writ large and the sophisticated business leadership of Alabama as represented by the Mercedes and Honda plants and Airbus want you to send this guy away. Hmm. And that, that I think that was... That was like the uh, driving the uh, silver spike into Dracula's heart, in a, in a sense. You know, there was one statistic I saw I saw in the uh, exit polls that uh, that bothered me, and that is, although women fifty percent, fifty seven percent of women supported Doug Jones. If we look at just white women, the figure I saw was sixty three percent of white women support voted for Roy Moore, uh, despite. The the numerous women who've charged him with sex crimes and sexual harassment, who are the white women who uh, a majority of whom stuck uh, stuck with Roy Moore? Well, the the facile answer, 
uh, is probably these are the same white women who voted in a majority for President Trump over Hillary Clinton. Yeah. I mean, there are mystifying events in politics, and that, yeah. you know, that is a, a, a tremendous one. And I think there you're seeing the force of traditional culture in Alabama. But still, turning those statistics around to see that you're looking at 60-odd percent rather than 80 percent of female support is progress. Yeah. Uh, as a journalist, I've always been inclined to be cynical and look at the, at the, at the negative, but in this case, I'm looking at the positive. There's a, ga- there's a genuine gain going on there, and it's a feminist energy. Because these are suburban women and older women in the churches who are basically defying their husband's political wishes. Well, Howell Reigns, it's been wonderful having you as our man in Alabama for the last month. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. It's been my pleasure. What should happen with the Me Too campaign to expose sexual harassment now that Al Franken has said he will leave the Senate? For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. Of course, she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? Joan, welcome back. So we should just say we're taping this on Tuesday afternoon. We do not yet have Alabama results, so we don't know what's going to uh, happen with the Roy Moore you have been a big fan of Al Franken, and so have I. Now he said he will leave the Senate after a large group of his female colleagues there called on him to step down, including uh, Kristen Gillibrand of New York. Uh, Let's just back up a little bit. Sure. I mean, I adore Al Franken, and I also adore Kristen Gillibrand. I was tortured about Senator Franken having to resign. I did reluctantly come over to the he should resign side after the eighth allegation, even though I think we talked about this already. All eight allegations, or you know, at least the early ones, they all had something a little bit off with them. But when you get to eight, you, you may well go up from eight, right? So he did what he did, and a lot of us are sad. So that's where we were as of Uh, let's say, Monday night. And I was on Twitter all weekend. I know our listeners know I'm a, you know, Twitter pugilist. And I just got drawn into this fight to defend Senator Gillibrand because I don't even know if I think Senator Franken had to resign. But I do know that it's wrong to blame the woman. And there just seemed like some kind of toxic misogyny that was coming at her, even from women, I'm sorry to say. All that was happening, and I was trying to write about that. It was like, you know, riding a horse or something that's just getting away from you. And then I woke up this morning, and Donald Trump had come after Senator Gillibrand, who did say, belatedly in my opinion, that, you know, Senator Franken had to resign. Well, yeah, President Trump should too. Men have said that. Three Three out of the four senators who said that were men. And he picked Senator Gillibrand, and he basically accused her of, I don't know, I've been hearing the word slut-shaming on TV today, which, you know, isn't really a word you hear on TV. He basically said that she would do anything for to get money from him, which sounded like prostitution. But there was a second uh, fascinating thing that happened on Tuesday, which was the New York Times ran a op-ed piece by Zephyr Teachout, 
called I'm Not Convinced Franken Should Quit, arguing that we really need due process to adjudicate these charges, some of which, as you said, are uh, not uh, completely convincing. What did you think of Zephyr Teachout's argument, she's not convinced Franken should quit? Like I said, I have swung back and forth on this one more than anything, I think, in my, in my history as a you know, card-carrying pundit. Um, and I love <laughs> Zephyr's piece. And I think Zephyr you know, put out there what, what was missing in the last month. And, you know, and this indicts Democrats as well as Republicans. I don't do the both sides thing very much, as you know, John. Mm-hmm. But it, what, what really happened, um, I think, in the last few months is that many institutions, including Congress, were caught unready for this Me Too moment. And Congress did not have a credible, believable, transparent way of calling people, calling their members to account for sexual harassment or abuse charges. Um, You and I talked about this, about the Office of Compliance, whatever that means, (laughs) a couple of weeks ago. It's a joke. Women had to go for essentially counseling for four weeks. There was a real failure to prepare the institution for what was coming. And, you know, I think that Senator Franken was actually a victim of that failure. You know, he was part of it. He's been in the Senate for whatever it is, you know, seven years. Yeah. Um, he could have made that his issue, too. But a lot of people are, you know, caught up in it, especially the people who run the House and Senate who are Republicans. But there was no, there is and was no really credible way for a senator to ask for an ethics investigation and for their constituents or journalists or other members of Congress to say, well, yes, we will give you that and it will be really serious, fair, but serious. And so I feel like Zephyr Teachout, uh, who is so brilliant, put out there what should have been in place all along. Uh, We should know what it is. Women, men, uh, victims, the accused should know what it is. They should know what, where they're going, and it should happen within 30 days. And that, you know, she added that piece. And even though I did, as we've discussed, belatedly say I thought that Senator Franken had to, had to resign the way he did, I felt like Zephyr had, you know, created this new way of looking at everything that should have been created years ago. So if we say Al Franken deserves a due process before he is uh, excluded from the Senate, shouldn't we say the same thing about Roy Moore in Alabama? We are, uh, we're, with Roy Moore, we say, I believe the women. What is there any difference between these two cases? Oh, absolutely, because Roy Moore is up for election as we speak. You know, Al Franken would not have been until, I think, 2020, right? He was, yeah. he was reelected overwhelmingly in 2014, you know, and I do feel bad about taking my puny voice, diminishing the voice of Minnesotans who want to stand behind Al Franken. But there's no comparison. Roy Moore is up for election. I say believe the women. He says don't. His wife says don't. His wife also said that they 
don't hate Jews because they have a GU as a lawyer. <laughs> yes. um, that was so, let me just, let me, you know, let me just explain for those who don't <laughs> don't know what we're talking about. The final rally, Roy Moore rally in Alabama. His wife, for some reason, decided to say we have a lawyer who's a Jew, and therefore we couldn't possibly be anti-Semites. This was her idea to bring this up as the closing argument of the Roy Moore campaign. Kind of an interesting approach. You mentioned the great state of Minnesota. I, of course, am from St. Paul. I, I just want to note that one of the leading Republicans of Minnesota, Arnie Carlson, who was governor of Minnesota for eight years uh, in the 90s, has also said that Al Franken should continue to serve until there has been due process that has found him guilty of these uh, charges. Arnie Carlson Republican, former Republican governor of Minnesota says uh, Al Franken was elected by the people and he should continue to serve until a legal determination has been made that he is unfit to serve. Al Franken has said he is resigning. What exactly will that accomplish? Will it win Republican women to vote for Democrats next November in the midterm elections because the Democrats believe the women and the Republicans don't? What will it accomplish? I'm not sure, John. As I've said, as you know, I've gone back and forth on this. But I guess this is what this is where I came down last week when he resigned. And that is the resistance to Donald Trump is powered by the anger and grief of women. The the thing that bothered me about Kristen Gillibrand, and you know I wrote about this in The Nation, if you're all going to call for Franken to resign, you better call for investigations of Donald Trump. And voila, that has happened in the last week, not because I said it, but because it needed to happen. But I think that what I felt as a feminist, an Al Franken supporter, a progressive, as I have had to debate this, either with my friends, on social media, on television, on radio, on podcasts, is if you have to explain away eight different accusations, you're losing. And there was something wrong with every single accusation, but there were eight. And so I felt the day that he resigned and the day before, even though his resignation made me really sad, was that one person cannot stand in the way of the reckoning with what women have suffered all of these years. And also with the reckoning that is bringing our voices and our complaints to the forefront. And I feel like that is kind of where he got to, although he was also very defensive. And even though he seemed to acknowledge some of the, uh, at least the pain he caused in, in his resignation statement, he, he was defiant and he didn't admit anything. Something happened in at least a few of those cases. I would be happy if he decide if Mark Dayton makes a mistake and appoints a caretaker, which I think is such a wimpy Democratic thing. A terrible idea. Terrible idea. And also a wimpy due process, we try to play fair Democratic idea, which, you know, we've got to get over that. If Dayton does that and appoints somebody who won't run and can't win to Franken's seat, I would probably send Al Franken some money next week because he should run again. But if indeed he, he appoints a decent woman who wants to run again, I don't know, John, I'm sad about it, but something's happened 
And, you know, I think that forcing his female colleagues to defend him and get into the nitty-gritty about were his hands really on Leanne Tweeden's breasts or were they just shadows? Was it just a joke? I don't know. We can't – I don't think we have the time to go there and argue all eight cases and defend all eight cases when there were eight and there might have been 18 well, Minnesota certainly has some qualified people, many women, who who can replace Al Franken. Uh, one of the most interesting to me is the representative in the Congress of my hometown of St. Paul, Betty McCollum, who has a piece at thenation.com this week. She's a terrific person. I'm not sure she would want to run for the Senate statewide. That is a big thing to do when you have a safe house seat. And of course... If they weren't going to appoint a woman, they could appoint Keith Ellison, who's certainly the most prominent uh, House member from from Minnesota. But there are many qualified, energetic, and talented progressive Democrats who could take this seat. Let, let's note just in passing here that Al Franken was a, was a very effective advocate for women and women's issues for the last uh, seven years. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, and that's why it's heartbreaking. <laughs> So this doesn't end with Franken's departure. It begins. That's what Joan Walsh says. You can read her at thenation.com, including her article, Now That Al Franken Is Gone, Democrats Need to Hold Hearings on Trump. Joan, thanks so much for talking with us today. As you've said, this is a moving target, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to you in the coming weeks. I look forward to it, John. Thank you. Now we have some more bad news. The Federal Communications Commission is expected on Thursday to repeal the net neutrality rules that have guaranteed equal access to the Internet in the United States. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. His most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's good to be with you, John. So how would you define net neutrality? Well, net neutrality is the First Amendment of the Internet. Uh, It's the guarantee that communications on the Internet will be treated equally. You know, one of the great things about the First Amendment in our Constitution is the concept that its protections don't merely go to the wealthiest or to the most powerful or the most connected. Uh, You have a right to speak, whether you're a Koch brother or whether you're a working-class person challenging the Koch brothers. Now, uh, our Supreme Court has messed with that in some ways, and we could have a big, long discussion about uh, money and politics. But that basic premise of speech rights being equal is a fundamental concept of the American experiment. And when the Internet developed, it was a underpinning of the idea of how the Internet worked. Obviously, in its early days, communications were on a very equal footing. But as the Internet has become the dominant force in our lives, the vehicle by which we communicate uh, with our friends and and loved ones, the vehicle by by which we engage in commerce, and increasingly the vehicle by which we engage in politics, Uh, not least the President of the United States is, you know, kind of the very active user of social media. You know, as this change has taken place, we have seen what we've seen in every other media platform in history. And that is an effort by corporations to get a sort of special set of rules 
that might allow them to profit off the Internet. And the fight in, uh, as regards net neutrality is really this, a very simple fight. If we eliminate net neutrality, telecommunications corporations will create fast lanes for content from corporate and powerful political entities that pay for speed, i.e., that you know, pay to be the, uh, the most rapidly delivered communication. And they will create slow lanes for those who cannot pay. I, I think that any of your listeners will well understand uh, the impact that that might have on democracy. So the FCC, under these rule changes that, that are to be announced on Thursday, would allow Internet service companies to charge users more to see certain content, would allow them to restrict access to some website, as you say, mm -hmm. to provide high-speed service to companies that pay for it or to the which they favor for some other reason. So the Internet service companies would decide who were the winners and who were the losers. We could even get mm -hmm. unlimited streaming from some websites and be charged for others, or others would just be slower. There's, there's many, many ways this could be a bad thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, but the basic concept is, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out how it would end up. And that is, uh, to give you the example I always use, Walmart is the largest retailer in the world. It's this incredibly powerful uh, commercial entity. They rely a lot on the Internet. They rely on it to both communicate about what's happening in their stores and also to sell things. Of course, they're going to lay down a tremendous amount of money to make sure that their communications moves at the fastest rate and to the very top of any search engine. You know, when you, when you call up the name Walmart, of course, there they are right at the top. There are all sorts of groups that challenge Walmart, that suggest it's monopolistic, that suggest it is not fair to its workers, that suggest that um, it doesn't uh, provide a diversity of products, all sorts of, all sorts of critiques, and, and we know them well. There's groups like Walmart Watch. If they can't afford to uh, communicate at the same speed, at the same level as Walmart, we start to create a situation where the powerful entity has supercharged ability to communicate, but the watchdog, the union group, the consumer group, the community group that might be concerned about this monopolistic, powerful entity finds it almost impossible to get to the top of any list in a discussion. But also once people, even if people did find their materials and tapped on and say, well, I don't watch a video that explains you know, labor issues at this, this big retailer, it might move at, a, at such a slow rate that, that reasonable people would just give up, right, yeah. and save that yeah. too much. This is, that, that inequity, just to use, again, the simple Walmart model, but you could use it in politics, you can use it in all sorts of other areas, that inequity ultimately creates a, a situation where power, the powerful, the oligarchs, the, the plutocrats, those who are at the top of the game, in this moment, when we have so much inequality, could, by the FCC, be handed significantly greater ability to enhance their position uh, at the same time as those who might criticize them are undermined. Net neutrality is currently the law of the land because of an Obama FCC policy. What exactly is the FCC voting on on, 
on uh, Thursday. Is there any chance that the FCC will decide not to change the Obama rule? Uh, it's unlikely that they will decide not to. Uh, the Obama rule was, was really simply an application of traditional communications law and to traditional communications rules as regards utility, you know, the, the public service component, the public utility component of uh, different media platforms uh, to the Internet. And it simply said, you know, look, the, the Internet exists as something that's vital in all of our lives. We need to have some rules. And the, the first and most important rule is that our communications should operate on an equal playing field, that you can't speed some up, slow some others down. Uh, again, can't have a... a uh, information superhighway for the wealthy and powerful, and a dirt road for everybody else. And so the Obama folks did that, frankly, grudgingly. I mean, it's important to understand that this was a citizen victory. Yeah. Now, President Obama appointed some very good people to the FCC, but even some of his people were resistant initially. And millions of Americans demanded a, a functional Internet that actually served community, small d, democratic goals, as well as the commercial and entertainment goals of, of the powerful, the elites. And so uh, this is a very good thing that happened just a couple of years ago. It's hated by the telecommunications giants. And when Trump came in, he moved up one of the Republican dissident opposition members of what was the Obama FCC to the chairmanship. Uh, this guy, a former Verizon lawyer, uh, is incredibly determined to to move this change. And he's got two allies on the five-member commission. So the likelihood that he gets the change uh, that he has proposed is quite strong. It, it's very likely. Now, it could get slowed down a little. There, sometimes you will see you know, a last-minute decision to delay because of overwhelming input from the people. But I, I don't see that happening. So assuming... That on Thursday, the FCC abolishes net neutrality. What can we do then? You've said uh, this is a First Amendment issue. Can this be brought to the courts, or what, what should we be doing? Absolutely, it can be brought to the courts. And in fact, um, that's what will happen. And, and that's the hopeful part of this. Now, there's a lot of ways that, that we could intervene to protect net neutrality after the FCC uh, does its dirty deed. One way is Congress, and Congress has a lot of authority in this area and, and could act. But obviously, I'm not expecting Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell yeah. to leap to the defense of, of people's communications. And so uh, really where the action is is in the courts. The good news on this is that groups uh, such as Common Cause and Color of Change, Free Press, which I've been associated with over the years, uh, have a significant history of winning in the courts on these issues. Where they win is an interesting area, and that is that uh, when the FCC takes an action that is overwhelmingly unpopular, when the overwhelming majority of comments and all the public input, or overwhelming portion of the public input, is in opposition to the FCC's action, if the FCC does it, we have uh, quite a bit of uh, case law where the courts have said, hold it. You are supposed to protect the public interest. You are supposed to you know, make sure that the, the people have an input as regards their airwaves and, you know, their digital communications, all these different, you know, ways in which uh, communications platforms operate. 
And so when we were fighting the fight over media cross-ownership, which is whether one company can own the newspaper, radio stations, TV stations, all these things in a town, when we were fighting that fight some years ago, the FCC did the wrong thing. But then that went into the courts, and the courts said, hold it, you know, that's not right. You have to, this thing has to go back and be reconsidered. And so that's, I think, the likelihood of what will happen. But it'll be a brutal battle, and it could take a long time. And in that interim, the damage that's done could be severe. And so we have to also do one other thing, which is outside of Congress and the courts and the regulatory sector, and that is to put pressure on these telecommunications companies not to slow things down, not to, you know, throttle or stall. And that pressure has some impact because these companies will be competing for our eyes. Yeah. You know, that's what they sell. What they really sell is us. And if consumers band together and say, we want Internet service that is fast, efficient, and equal, there's there's more to it uh, or more to that possibility than some might think. So multiple ways of responding, but we will have to respond if the FCC, as expected, kills off net neutrality. Well, we should just note here that the defenders of abolishing net neutrality say that competition is going to solve whatever problems we imagine, that the Internet companies will compete with each other to get those eyeballs, to offer a better deal than their rivals, and the consumers will get to decide what kind of deal they want. Gee, that sounds great. In the initial stages, you might see some of that, but here's the painful reality. What we see with our telecommunications, but also with our digital conglomerates, consolidation. Yeah. They're always trying to merge, you know, and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so they always tell us that competition will save us. But then in the next breath, they say, and, but bigness will be more efficient, right? Well, it's got to be one or the other. Yeah. And, uh, and here's the painful reality. When they say that competition will save us, I think in some initial stages on this, it's possible that if consumers band together and make demands, they can have an impact. And that's always vital and real. But in reality, a part of the competition is, is one of our problems. Because what Internet providers will do is say, um, come to us for fast service and you'll, be, you'll have access to a, a fast service to a million websites. Yeah. And you'll go, wow, a million websites. That sounds great. Yeah. Right? But if it's a million that, that are paying to have the fast service, uh, we've already got a warped discourse. One last quick question. Given how unpopular ending net neutrality is with the public, is Congress really a lost cause? Could this be an issue for the Democrats in uh, 2018, a year from now? Absolutely. It's a great issue, and it's a great issue especially for rural areas, um, small businesses, you know, all sorts of uh, constituencies that the Democrats have had some struggles in recent years reaching out to are very concerned about these issues. And so, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there. But one thing that's really vital is for Democrats to get good at talking about these issues. There are some people who are great at it, like Bernie Sanders, Ed Markey, a number of people in the House. But the fact of the matter is, uh, up to this point, Democrats have not made this a central issue. And it's really a part of remaking the Democratic Party in a broader sense to be a party that speaks effectively to the issues of the 21st century. And I cannot begin to emphasize net neutrality is a 21st century issue uh, that 
if it's addressed correctly, could well influence the direction of elections, and frankly should, because if we don't defend net neutrality, uh, we're going to have a lot harder time defending democracy. Net neutrality, it's been called the free speech fight of our generation. John Nichols wrote about it at thenation.com. His piece is called, If Trump's FCC Repeals Net Neutrality, Elites Will Rule the Internet and the Future. John Nichols, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the splits in the NFL Players Coalition over the anti-racist protests that have been taking place during the national anthem. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.